In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The year was 1810. A young man by the name of Jackson had just graduated valedictorian of his class at a prominent New York school. He was the son of Daniel, a decorated general under General Washington, and Elizabeth, who came from a well-known Dutch family. He had all the connections and education anyone in that day could need. And yet, to add to it, he was baptized and raised in Trinity Episcopal Church on Wall Street. He had the world before him. He could do anything he chose and lead a rather comfortable and fulfilling life. And yet, he couldn't shake this call of God on his life, which led him to be a priest. So he pursued it, which led him to Philadelphia, where he'd be ordained and serve in a prominent church where the bishop had been the rector before him. One could say, by the world's standards, that such a pursuit of ministry was quite a sacrifice. But Jackson couldn't shake this call of God to continue to surrender and follow his prompting. So it led him out of that prominent Philadelphia church, out with his elderly mentor on a missionary journey into the western Pennsylvania region and even into nearby West Virginia, where they planted a church together. And at that time, when there was much discussion about moving out west, Jackson, it seemed, would be the perfect fit to be the first missionary bishop to the wilds of those unsettled territories out west. So he left a life of comfort on the eastern seaboard and went to that northwest territory, as it was called, in those states we now know as Indiana, Missouri, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Nebraska. Walking countless miles, traveling by water when he could, sleeping in canoes to avoid mosquitoes in undeveloped lands, he spurred on and reached countless souls with the love of Jesus, doing more than most would in a lifetime. He reached out to and then confirmed and baptized some 10,000 souls in his day, sometimes traveling for days to confirm one native individual in a region that he didn't even know. He founded countless churches and even the seminary that many of us in this area have attended. And it was there at the end of my sabbatical that I went to spend some time in quiet prayer before the campus filled back up with students. And as I sat in the quiet of that chapel, I was pouring out before the Lord all that faced us, all that faced us culturally in our nation, even the challenges of our parish as we look to budget and grow, staffing needs that press upon us, and just a general need to get back after it as a church. As I cried out for the Lord's direction, I sat back in a familiar chair and just waited for the Lord to speak. Almost on cue, this row of windows across the chapel lit up, which contained and bear the image of Jackson Kemper himself. And as I looked at it and meditated upon his life once more, I was reminded that he never gave up. He faced hardship at every turn along the way, and he would sacrifice everything for the sake of the gospel. As we launch into this fall, 
I share this not only to remind myself, but all of us, that whether you're ordained or not, the call to follow Jesus is not easy. It's not comfortable. Churches are not called to be chapels of ease, but rather hospitals for those who are hurt and broken. And this morning, that call to surrender is one that's upon us in many places. But I'd like for us to turn our attention to James, if we may, in verses 26 to 27, where we back into that text. You can follow along on the screens or in your Bible. You'll find three practical lessons of surrender. What does that look like? We talk about surrendering our life to Jesus all the time, but here's three concrete things that we can do on the daily basis to do that, which will indeed transform our hearts, I believe. As we open to this text, let's um, deal with a rather large elephant in it. Um, that word religion, which is found twice in the last two verses, which um, a lot of people have a lot of challenge with, and certainly with right reason, at the end of the 19th century in the debates between Rahner and Bart, which led to some wonderful um, discourse about the place of religion, whether it's a stumbling block to relationship, as Bart famously said, the affair of godless men, or whether indeed it has some merit. It's a sermon for another day, um, but I think we should own up the fact that um, it is a challenge when we look at it. And perhaps the most important thing to note is this is only one of two other times, three total, that you'll find the word religion in the whole of the New Testament. The other two times, it's often negative, and this time it actually is given a positive light. And probably the best way to get around that block of our baggage, good or ill, with religion is to bear in mind these words from Richard Holloway, who in his book, The Way of the Cross, observes the following. Religion is the celebration of God and the discovery of his will for our lives celebration of God and the discovery of his will for our lives. If we bear that in mind, we discover that what we do should lead us to some action, and that's what James calls us to. So just a bit of a prelude to say, let's kind of get around that um, stumbling block right out of the gates. The first practical lesson, though, comes there in verse 26. It's rather obvious. A summation, really, of verses 19 to 21 in this call to bridle our tongue or control our speech. I think that's a wonderful and timeless reminder of a practical and yet very difficult place of surrender, certainly in our day. In fact, if we're transparent, we know that that's a hard thing to do, to hold our words into account, knowing that what we speak um, reflects the one who we claim to follow um, with our words and in our deeds, um, because we know that our words flow forth from our heart, as we were reminded last week in our gospel reading. But it's a hard point. It's a hard point to choose to enthrone Jesus in our thoughts and in our words to the exclusion of times of what we may think, um, what we may want to react from, what our two cents, solicited or not, may uh, enter into a conversation and certainly to withhold judgment in certain situations. And it's even harder in our country when we've so enthroned this ideal of freedom of speech to check that with the Lord beforehand. 
But growing to learn to bridle our tongue does indeed grow us in holiness, and it grows us in wholeness. Instead of telling the world what we may think, perhaps either digitally or uh, in person, or withholding our two cents, solicited or not, what if that first lesson led us indeed to turn to the Lord first by controlling our tongue, lifting up those things that we may need or that we're frustrated or raw about before we vent to others? What if instead of telling others what we thought, even when we may be an expert in that field, we turn them to Jesus in prayer first and point to him? And what if we just merely left some things unsaid altogether? What a different place our world or even just our relationships might be. It's a hard and slow word, but James reminds us if we slow our speech and we're more thoughtful, it can make all the more difference in the world, so as to edify and build up. Because as that old saying goes, you kind of can't unring the bell once it's been said. Second point for us to ponder in this text follows it. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction. Now, that should trigger a biblical phrase that was a lockup in all of the Old Testament. The alien, the fatherless, and the widow, which was what set God's people apart, if you remember, in the Old Testament. They were those people who had nothing um, to offer in return. There was no scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. They, they had no standing. They had oftentimes no position. They had nothing to give. And yet God calls them to be the ones that are tended to. And even later in the prophets, both major and minor, God says he will stand with and vindicate the oppressed. And so we see Jesus does this in our gospel lesson we heard just moments ago, right? He pulls that both deaf and mute individual off to the side out of prying eyes and looses his tongue. There's a whole imagery we could tie in with that first lesson, but I won't go back there. James spends quite a few verses leading up to this in verses 22 to 25 to remind us um, that as we do that, we are not called to be foolish. And he uses this image like a man who looks at himself in a mirror and then walks away and forgets who he is. Now that in and of itself, we would say, is indeed foolish, and we might say, well, there's an image we're not to forget who we are in Christ, you know, remembering who we are and then walking away and, and letting the menial things um, drag us in this direction or that. But James may indeed be pointing to something even deeper, namely that in looking at who we are, we remember whose image we bear. Back to the fundamentals, made in the image of God, and that as we remember how we're made, how we're formed, when we serve the least and the lost, we're reminding ourselves and them that they're made in God's image, no matter how tainted and marred that may look. That we point to the dignity that they have, and as we serve them, we indeed remind ourselves of the same. And so, indeed, another practical way to surrender is indeed by caring for the oppressed. There's countless ways we can do it, but here's the difference between the church 
and in every other place in society. The church isn't a club. She doesn't reach out to the oppressed for the sake of doing good works alone. Um, she does it for the pure and unabashed purpose of bringing others to know Jesus. There's always a hook. There should always be a hook. That as we pull them up out of their state, those who are oppressed, we show them they have worth and they have dignity in the eyes of God, just as we do when we bring them in with us. That's what the church does in caring for the oppressed. That's what we're called to do. And as we begin this um, study of Ezra, we're going to begin to, around Scripture, dialogue and pray in the weeks to come in small groups uh, about what God may call us to do specifically in our community beyond our walls towards that end as a church more impactfully. So keep an eye out for that. Join in and continue to pray into it with us. Lastly, the final mark of pure religion comes in the second half of verse 27. After that, caring for the orphans and widows and their affliction, we are called to what? To keep ourselves, oneself, unstained from the world. Now, James uses an intentional word there, unstained. I'm sure you noticed it, and it should trigger some things in your mind. He could have used other biblical words like be pure and blameless or, um, you know, continue to be set apart for the Lord. But he uses unstained because it would hearken back to an Old Testament image, namely that of the sacrificial lamb. Remember those sacrificial lambs that would be a sin offering in the Old Covenant were intended to be those that were without stain or blemish, namely to offer God one's best. And if one couldn't do that, they would join together with other households to do that, namely to give God the very best that they could. And then, of course, in the New Testament, we know that sacrificial lamb once and for all becomes Jesus himself, who was unstained, unspotted by the world, who never sinned, and yet who stepped into the world to be a sin offering for us and not for us only but for the whole world, as we hear as part of worship week after week after we make our general confession in 1 John. And so what does that look like? We um, are called to reflect upon the fact that if we are going to be unstained from the world, it's going to come with sacrifice, a choice to be set apart, to offer God our best at all times in all places. And that's never easy. It cuts against the grain. In a culture whose mantra is, follow your heart, the church says, no, that will get you in a lot of trouble because my heart will tell me to do some pretty terrible and selfish things. No, I'm going to follow Jesus, and you should too. There's a better way to live life. And when we do that, it means that it's going to look a little different. And it means that um, we take time differently in our week. We um, make time for church, yes, but then we carve up our week to be in God's word, to be with others who will sharpen us, who will challenge us. We partake of different things. We raise our kids, our grandkids differently. We choose to be set apart and train them in the way that they should go. We have different peer groups, and it's not easy, but that's the call to follow Jesus. And so as we begin the fall, amidst all that may be whirling in our own hearts 
and in the world around us right now, we do well to begin once more with surrender. Because that's where it begins and ends every single day before Jesus. And we have some practical lessons this morning from James towards that end. To control our speech, it's a simple reminder every day, but a difficult one. In the midst of our emotions and trials, to instead not jump behind the keyboard or into a conversation on the phone or in person, but by starting with the Lord in prayer. And to care for the oppressed, that as we reach out to the least of these, we don't do it to build ourselves up or to point to how good the church can be, but only to show them whose image they are made in and to remind ourselves, but there for the grace of God go I. And then lastly, to be reminded that we are called toward that end to a life set apart for God as living sacrifices unto him. As I sat at the end of my sabbatical and reflected on that window of Bishop Kemper, I was reminded of these things. I went back and I was reading through some of his old sermons, which um, are beautifully in digital print these days. Let me leave you with an excerpt from this. He had come back in years after being out in the mission field, back uh, to seek funding, to seek support, to seek those who would join him in the work. And his words are timeless because the human heart never changes. And this is what he says, and I quote, Brethren, may it not be our duty to convert the world. May not this high, this inestimable privilege be offered to us. And are we prepared? Are we doing at the present moment even one-tenth part of what we are capable? Our means and our power are extensive. And under the blessing of whom, without whom nothing is strong, nothing is holy, our aim, our constant, undeviating, untiring aim should be great and lofty with the talents we possess, and for which, as good stewards, we must finally give an account at that hour when no secrets can be hid. With the talents committed to our trust and the privileges we enjoy, cannot our faith, our liberty, and our self-denial greatly increase? Cannot our supplications be more fervent, our economy more strict, our love of souls more ardent? Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, it's time. It's time to strengthen our knees if we're weary, to find ways where you can grow and be refreshed. It's time if you flag behind to join back in in that work. It's time if you've been on the sidelines to jump in to what God purposes to do in your life and in our world. I stand before you ready to do that. But I can't do it alone. Nor can it rest on the staff around you. It's time to surrender today and every day to the will of Jesus, and to seek to be faithful to him above all else, so that turning beyond these walls, we may reach our generation for Jesus, and then raise up countless generations to do the same until he returns. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.